Hey, you're listening to Cut for Time, a podcast from Faith Church located on the north side of Indianapolis. My name is Claire Kingsley. Each week, I'll sit down with one of our preaching pastors to discuss their Sunday sermon. Cut for Time is a look behind the scenes of sermon preparation, and they'll share with us a few things that we didn't hear from the sermon on Sunday. Thanks for listening. All right, all right. Welcome to an all-new Cut for Time. With Joey Weisman And Claire Kingsley coming to you live from the kitchen. Yes. All right, Joey, jump into your sermon on Sunday. Give us a recap from the sermon. The sermon on the sermon. The sermon on the sermon. That's right. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever preached um, someone else's sermon, but I did on Sunday. So Peter's first sermon, I guess you call it the first sermon of the brand new church. Uh, right. We're at this point in the narrative where um, a crowd has formed Jews from all over the world or in Jerusalem for the feast. They're hearing they're, I don't know if they're seeing the tongues like fire and hearing the rushing wind. But we do know that at least they're hearing uh, people speaking in their own language, which will catch your ear when you're you know halfway around the world. And you're like, oh, I hear English or whatever your language is. And it sort of attracted them. And then they're like, wait, who, why are these guys the ones who are speaking this? Like they're Galileans, they're uneducated, they're fishermen and farmers. Like why would they know this language from wherever they're from? Um, And they're hearing them in their own language talk about what God has done in the Messiah, Jesus, uh, in the course of, you know, the last two months um, in Jerusalem, which of course is everybody's talking about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, there there's there's some in the crowd that are like we want to hear more there's others that are like ah, what's going on and then there's some that are saying ah whatever they're just uh, filled with sweet new wine is the actual mm. greek phrase and that's when peter gets up and he's like no what you're seeing is not drunkenness it's nine o'clock in the morning it's a time for prayer we haven't even eaten breakfast yet uh this is not drunkenness this is what Joel predicted. And what's fascinating about this sermon is it's a, it's a Jewish sermon to a Jewish audience trying to convince people who already believe that God is God, trying to convince them that, and God has done something new. He has sent the actual Messiah, not just another one of the messiahs that you always hear about out, out in the hill country somewhere, um, claiming they're, you know, trying to get a following and claiming that God's speaking to them. Like, this is the Messiah. He mm-hmm. performed signs and wonders. You saw it. God validated who he is, attested to him by who he is or by what he'd done. And um, and then he was crucified, which is horribly dehumanizing. And yet God raised him up, and, which is unexpected, the resurrection. So he has, you know, he quotes David to say, no, resurrection, like we should have seen this coming. And now God has made him Lord and Christ. And that is his mission. Like God has made the you crucified Lord and Christ. And so for us, it's like, well, that's also the recognition realization that we need to come to, that that this Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, our Savior, and we need to turn and, and submit to him just, just as they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Joey. So um, you covered verses 14 to 36, and yeah. um, verse 36 has this phrase, God made him both Lord and Christ, which you were just referring yes. to. Yep. Um, we had a question someone asked with this specific wording, how does this fit with what we know that Jesus, the son of God has always existed, always been since the beginning, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. before he 
came in the form of a baby. Um, so has he not always been Lord and Christ if he had to be made Lord and Christ? Yeah, right, right. No, it's a great question. Um, and it's one that I'd, I'd flag to talk about anyway, even if no one asked about it. It's like, wait, okay. so wasn't he always Lord and Christ? So yes. uh, we should, yeah, exactly. We should think of this from a couple of different sort of uh, places where we could stand conceptually. So if we're standing outside of time and we're talking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he has always been the Lord, the Messiah, um, because God is, you know, standing outside of space and time. Um, I forget, is it in Hebrews that uh, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world? So from a sort of timeless perspective, always Lord, always Christ. Absolutely. Um, But if we put ourselves into the narrative where Luke is sitting as a historian and we're, we're, we're looking at it from say, you know, some like a human perspective, some person in AD 35 is looking at the timeline of Jesus's life and they're saying, okay, at his resurrection and ascension, this is when he is a, you know, attested to and proved to be Lord in Christ, mm-hmm. uh, the Lord and the Messiah. So one of the ways to think of it is like, you know, in November, uh, every four years we vote for a president and that person becomes the president elect, right? So they're voted, mm. they're the president, but they're not the president yet. Right. So they're the president elect until the inauguration which is when they're sworn in and then they become the president. And then of course there's the sort of the, the celebration that happens after it. So it, it, uh, it, by analogy, we could say like, yeah, Jesus is Lord elect or Messiah elect in his life becomes Lord and Messiah at his death and resurrection, and then is celebrated as the Lord and the Christ at his ascension. Uh-huh. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, because yeah, he's always Lord and Christ. But Luke, um, unlike the other gospel writers, Luke is really careful never to be anachronistic with Jesus's titles of Messiah or Lord and write those back into the gospel narrative before his death and resurrection and Mm -hmm. ascension. Uh, Luke is really careful not to give him the title that he hasn't yet sort of proved it within time um, to give him that title before he's his death and resurrection. Yeah, that makes sense. So he's setting up his whole argument, right? Like yeah, he would lose yeah. people already if he brought it out too soon and didn't have any way to show it or demonstrate right, that. Right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right. So Joey, is there anything that you needed to cut for time for the sermon? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. You know, I, yes. There was um, there was some stuff that I I had thought about framing the whole sermon um, by talking about mystery novels um, because when you read like a good mystery novel um, you get to the end and there's the big reveal and then if you read it a second time you're like oh I see it now I see it now I see it now all the way through totally yeah and I, I, exactly and I felt like that was how Peter was reading the Old Testament in this sermon. He was saying, okay, now we've had the big sit down where the detective gets everyone in the room and says, here's what happened, right? This is what Jesus did when he was teaching about the kingdom for 40 days. 
And now, okay, now if I read the story from the beginning, I can see, oh, this was a red herring. This was important. I understand it now. And I had this whole thing about how there's different theories of writing mystery novels and how much you reveal as the author so that the audience can either figure it out ahead of, ahead of the detective or they can't figure it out until after the detective does and he explains it and blah, blah, blah. And I, I was like, eh, I'm not really sure that works. It's not like yeah. the Old Testament is a mystery novel. Um, but the principle of getting that back. clarity and yeah. then reading it back you know seeing it more clearly when you read back i mean it's the same thing with like understanding the trinity and reading the trinity in scripture it's like oh now that i see that it makes sense all the way through anyway yeah the 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 other thing that i cut that i think would have actually been helpful to include um you know if we had 40 minute sermons was um a discussion about Peter's use of the prophecy from Joel. Um, so the prophecy from Joel, let me let me pull it up here so I can actually read it, um, read it correctly. Um, so again, we're in Acts chapter two and Peter's sermon. So in Acts 2, 17 through 21, he quotes from Joel from the end of chapter two of, of Joel. Or if you're reading it in a Hebrew Bible, uh, it's chapter three in Joel. This is all of chapter three. That just the mm -hmm. numbers are different in a Hebrew text versus our English text. Um, <clears throat> so, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And a lot of people who read this think, well, that's what um, Peter wants to quote. Like, that's the important stuff that pertains to his experience on that day. But then because he wants to eventually get to verse 21, he just keeps going with, you know, blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And then he wants to get to, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Mm -hmm. um, because there's sort of a, a, a thought or, or an assumption that because we haven't specifically seen, okay, where's the blood? Where's the fire? Where's the columns of smoke? Where's the sun going dark? Where's the moon turning red? Because we haven't you know, been able to create a checklist and check those things off on the day of Pentecost. Those things must not have been fulfilled. And those are going to be fulfilled at some point in the future. And so we kind of take this verse and we like split it in half and we're like, well, this part's for now and this part's for the future. And, and I think that that approach, it, I understand why people take that approach, um, but I think it misunderstands the nature of Hebrew uh, prophecy in large part. Peter thinks that everything he's saying is being fulfilled in these events of Jesus's death and resurrection, now the pouring out of the spirit, right? We, we know that that New Testament people can quote Old Testament verses selectively and leave out the things they don't think yet apply. We've seen it happen already in the Gospels. Luke records it, Jesus reading from the scroll of the temple and stopping at a certain point, right? So the fact that he includes all of it is important. It's not just, oh, we got to include this part because it's in the middle and you know you can't skip verses. Not at all the way. The, what's going on here is that this is... Um, like you could think of it as like a, a tone poem or an impressionistic painting. Um, Hebrew prophecy uses just tons and tons and tons of detail to get across a feeling 
or sort of a cosmic picture, like the sun going dark or the moon going from white to red. Like th these are pictures of opposites, of things being flipped upside down, of the whole order of the cosmos being turned uh, upside down from the way it should be. And that's what Peter is saying is happening in Jesus and happening in the coming of the spirit. It's like the whole world is being flipped upside down. So Peter isn't looking at the events of his day with like a checklist mentality of, okay, yep, we've got a uh, spirit. Yep. Um, sons and daughters prophesying. I suppose so. Maybe there were some kids there. Yep. Uh, old men. Yep. Okay. I don't know that we have dreams and visions. Did we have dreams and visions? You know, I guess we must have check mark, right? He's, he's not going through this, like with a checklist going, do we have it all? Do we have it all? Do we not have it all? He's saying what Joel is describing of the, the spirit coming on everyone and the world being turned upside down. That's what's happening now. That's what's happening today. And that means we're in the last days. And that means you got to call on the name of the Lord. Now, of course, there's, there's a, a, we should keep in mind, like if we're in the last days, then there is going to be a last day at the end of the last days. And on that last day, perhaps we will see some of these things and they will come in like this actual specific way of blood and fire and smoke and sun going dark and the moon turning red. But we're not going to know it's the last day because we hit everything on the checklist. Like we're going to know it's the last day because it's the last day. And, and you're just going to know. Yeah. Uh, you'd be like, oh, the whole world is turning upside down again. Um, this is the day in which God is re uh, returning. The day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, if I had, had kind of taught it through, I, I probably would have used uh, an analogy or an illustration. Like you could think about the 4th of July. You know, if I said like, hey, um, on that day, there will be brats on the grill and kids in the pool, families gathered around, a blue sky with white clouds, the sun shining and fireworks in the dark. Right. It's a lot of detail that I'm throwing at it, but I'm trying to create the sense of a feeling of celebration and gathering and food. And so if it came to the 4th of July and you're like, yep, yeah, we got brats on the grill. We got kids in the pool. We got family gathered around. We got fireworks at, in the dark, but it was cloudy and overcast and you couldn't see the sun and there was no blue sky. You wouldn't think, well, I guess it's not really the 4th of July, right? Because it's not a checklist. It's a, it's an illustration of a, of a feeling of a, of a gathering. And so um, we need to be careful not to read Peter's prophecy here. Uh, his quoting of Joel and being like, well, this is what Peter wanted and this part mattered, but this part doesn't, this is in the future, this is now, this is whatever, and then try to create a whole framework for what happens when and at what points, because that's not the way that Hebrew prophecy works. Um, Peter is quoting the, these verses to say the whole world has turned upside down in Jesus. Everything's the opposite of what you think it should be. Um, I think I said in the sermon, like you're floating in zero gravity. You don't know which way's up, which way's down. But the one solid ground is Jesus is Lord and Christ. And what I, what I, the other thing I love about what he does here in this quote and in the next quote and in the very last one is um, in the, in, you know, on Joel's lips, Lord but the great, the day of the Lord comes, call upon the name of the Lord. And on David, I saw the Lord always before me. Um, those are both words uh, in their original like lips that, that, that meant Yahweh. That meant the one God. 
And Peter is quoting them to say, hey, this is Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord is call on the name of Jesus. And so he, from the very beginning, the very first sermon in the church said, Jesus is equal to God, the one mm -hmm. God. And then it took, you know, the next couple hundred years of authors and writers and theologians going, okay, how does, how is there, okay, there's God, the father, there's Jesus, God, the son, there's the spirit of God, but there's one God. How does that work together? And, and to make sense of, you know, the Trinitarian understanding uh, of who God is. So anyway, that took what, like eight minutes. So didn't Not have that. time for it. Yeah. But I didn't have time for it in the sermon. So yeah. I'm glad that we got that question. Yeah. So um, how did Jews understand Joel's prophecy in the centuries or like years leading up to Christ? Yeah. No, it's a good question. Um, so they understood it as, uh, again, a, a, a prophecy of what would happen. Um, there wasn't a sense of the from this prophecy itself that, hey, the Messiah is the one who will have the the authority to pour out the spirit on everyone. But in in most Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, the spirit of God is not a second or third person of a triune God. Spirit of God, um, they understand to mean, hey, this represents God's active working presence. So saying, I will pour out my spirit on all people is God, it, it, in their understanding, it is God saying, I will work in all people. I will myself be working in all people, right? And uh, it, it's, it's the, the Christian understanding of the Old Testament that understands God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so sees a, you know, same God, different person, same essence, different person of the Trinity working in the spirit filling. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah. All right, so in in the text, we covered 14 through verses 14 through 36. And mm -hmm. um, starting in verse 17, this is where Joel's prophecies begins. It says, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, I pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And so I just want to yeah, like yeah. highlight that sons and yeah. daughters, because we had a question. Um, assuming that women are speaking in tongues at Pentecost, yep. Yep. then are these verses, and specifically that part in verse 17 mentioning sons and daughters, I know mm -hmm. this is like our translation of it. And so like, what was it originally? But um, does do those um, words reveal any kind of like new teaching or theology on the role of men and women within the gathering of followers? If women are also speaking in tongues then mm. it mm -hmm. so yep. are women speaking in tongues if they are yes. does that reveal something new about how women are being incorporated into the church what do you think oh now that's a great question yeah um so yes women are speaking in tongues here and we all remember from an earlier episode of cut for time that speaking in tongues means they are proclaiming the work of god authoritatively proclaiming what god has done in languages they didn't study or learn ahead of time. So that's what mm -hmm. speaking in tongues means here. And prophesying, uh, we'll remember, um, sometimes means predicting the future, but most of the time means authoritatively talking about what God is doing in the world. Yeah. And so, yes. Like testifying, absolutely. would you say? Yeah, would be testifying. Like kind of yeah. Similar? Okay. Yeah. Yes. But testifying with a sense of like, hey, what I'm telling you is true and you can believe it because I'm an, I am a, 
you know, on, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A reasonable witness. Like I'm, you know, um, you can, you can, I've got the authority to tell you that, yes, this is true. Yeah. yeah. And so men and women are doing this young men, old men, sons, daughters, male servants, female servants. Right. So there's no class distinction and there's no gender distinction yeah. in this passage about who can authoritatively proclaim the work of God in the world. Uh, is it, um, uh, is it saying something new about uh, the role of like, I think you asked the question, like the role of women in the gathering uh, about authoritatively proclaiming what God is doing? Uh, yes, I think so. Um, but not absolutely brand new, because if we remember back, uh, I'm flipping back to the end of Luke, you know, if we remember back to the end of Luke, um, Jesus is buried, there's a, res you know, he's resurrected. And um remember who is the, who are the first people to see Jesus alive yeah women and right. they go and right. tell yeah exactly it's Mary Magdalene it's Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who told these things to the apostles but these words seem that this is in Luke 24 verses 10 and 11 but these words seem to the apostles an idle tale and they did not believe them mm -hmm. so what what's fascinating there is the first people that the risen Jesus commissions to authoritatively speak about his resurrection are women. And I think that's huge. I think that mm -hmm. is absolutely huge. They tell the apostles. I mean, the apostles are the ones sent with a message. Someone has to tell them. And Jesus doesn't appear to them directly. He appears to these women and then says, you go tell them. And they don't believe. I mean, that's their problem. That's their fault uh, that they don't believe. So what, however, we read the rest of the New Testament and we try to understand what's being said when Paul's writing in certain things, certain places about, you know, women shouldn't teach in church or whatever. Um, at the same time, he says, hey, when women prophesy, here's when women prophesy, right? Authoritatively speak about what God is doing in the world and in scripture. Here's the guidelines for it. However, we want, we try to put those verses together. We have to keep in mind that the practice of the church of the early church. Well, we should keep in mind that the very first commissioned authoritative witnesses to the resurrection were women. That like this question asked that um, the very first days of the church involved women getting up and having been gifted by the spirit with languages they hadn't studied, they were given authority to speak about what God had done in the world in Jesus, the Messiah. And that throughout Paul's ministry, he's constantly employing women to uh, explain what he's teaching, to take carry messages, to explain what's going on. Um, you know, we're going to read in Acts about uh, other women who are teaching uh, men correct doctrine and things like that. So it's a great question. I, I don't know that it's like revealing something absolutely new so much as it is highlighting the practice of the early church and saying, yeah, the, the practice of the church is everybody is being filled with the spirit and empowered to speak authoritatively about what God is doing in the world, men and women, young and old, uh, servants and masters all across the board. Um, so we need to keep that in mind when we're reading other New Testament passages to read the teaching in context of the practice um, to help us understand it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, okay, question for you. So can you tell us what the actual um, 
like the Hebrew translation is for that sons and daughters? Is it our ESV that has like included the daughters part and that like in the original yeah, Hebrew it said sons? Because if it's was in the Old Testament as sons and daughters, would like would any religious leaders look to that as like a reason to include women in a different way, you know, if it originally yeah, had sure. daughters? Sure. Uh, let's pull up. So in Greek, uh, so remember Peter is reading from, and he knows the Greek translation of the old Testament. Okay. Um, so he is most likely, well, he, he, he knows, I think he knows the Hebrew translation of the old Testament, you know, the Aramaic versions of it, just the, these are the languages of the synagogue, the Aramaic, the Hebrew. But what we have is a quotation of the Greek version of the Old Testament. And, and actually, side note, that's kind of uh, interesting, because if you look in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Um, and it's the word for birth pangs of death. And some people look at it and it's like, wow, what a what a cool mixed metaphor of like, there's the birth pangs of death. Actually, what's happening here is that in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew, in, in, uh, from where this phrase pangs of death is used a couple of times in the Old Testament, um, it's cords of death is what's, uh, what the Hebrew says. But the Hebrew word for cord and the Hebrew word for birth pang are one vowel different. It's like shebel and shebel or something like that. And so the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament confused the two Hebrew words. And instead of translating chords, they translated it with a Greek word meaning birth pains or pangs. And so um, Luke knows the Greek Old Testament and so says birth pangs of death uh, instead of knowing the Hebrew Old Testament and saying the chords of death. Uh, gotcha. which is just one of those fascinating little um, translation nuance things. Um, so anyway, back to your original question. Um, remember, uh, Luke is Greek. He's writing to a Greek audience. He's quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament. And he's actually uh, sort of intentionally making what he writes, the history, sound like um, the Greek Old Testament, sort of writing in the style of the Greek Old Testament. So um so in Greek, it says sons and daughters, um, your sons and your daughters. In Hebrew, let's pull up uh, Joel chapter two, scroll to verse 28. Um, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons, so your beni, and your daughters, uh, your Benita. Um, so it, it's it's there in the original Hebrew, both sons and daughters shall prophesy. Um, now, Joel actually, or sorry, Peter actually in quoting Joel sort of embellishes um, what he's reading or, or, or uh, quotes it with slightly, a slight bit more specificity. Uh, in order to, to bring out how it fits the situation, right? In Joel, it's, it shall come to pass afterward um, Peter says, and in the last days, um, and, uh, yeah, and in the last days it shall be, um, uh, and like in it, Joel says, even on the male and female servants, and Peter says on my male and female servants, 
Um, Joel says, I'll show wonders uh, in the heavens and on the earth. And Peter says, I'll show wonders in the heavens and signs on the, uh, in the heavens above, adds above, and signs, he adds, on the earth below. So um, this is what happens in a, um, a, a uh, oral culture. You quote the words more than like read them from a thing most of the time. Mm, and yeah. so it, it's totally appropriate to uh, em embellish to add rhythm to it, to add words that sort of tie it to what you're, you know, you're seeing right then. Yeah. So anyway, yes. Um, so sons and daughters are both there in the Hebrew original. Um, if we look up the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, of the old Testament, and we look up, um, Joel 2, 28, then we get uh shall come to pour out my spirit all flesh and um and your your and on your slave oh i'm a little too far my greek's not great so um yeah your and on your sons and on your daughters so it's a it's an exact translate it's an exact quote in luke what is yeah. in the greek version of the old testament yeah so that was some a question that somebody submitted, you know, like referring yeah, to that. If that question. is the original, then do you think that he, they, this person specifically says, do you know of any Jewish scribe or religious leader who then looked at that prophecy and then like that informed an opinion yeah. of women or how women should be a spiritual voice or have a role in the church. Yeah. Yeah. I went and looked and, and didn't find anyone even commenting um, on that point, um, which is not unexpected. Um, I think we often forget that a lot of our um, exegesis is informed by the the culture in which we live and the questions that our culture finds up for grabs, you know, plausible or implausible. Yeah. And so in a, in a culture that has really clear ideas about what women can and can't do, um, you'd read a passage and it just doesn't even occur to you to think that, hey, maybe this confronts what I think. Um, and that is one of the hugely, that is the, the biggest reason why what, to do good exegesis of scripture, you have to read um, diachronically which means you have to read and like, how has scripture been interpreted in different cultures across time? Because different cultures, different places, different times ask different questions of the text and find different ideas, plausible or implausible. And so it, at the very least, it, it makes you realize, hey, the, the questions that I think are natural questions or unreasonable questions, that's, that may just be me, you know, it may be that I'm the one with the accent and need to realize I'm reading things, you know, through my own cultural lens. Um, that's not to say that one culture's lens is better or worse or automatically true or automatically false or anything like that. It's just to say, hey, I'm a contingent being that is embedded in and indebted to a, a cultural milieu. And I need to understand how that creates a lens through which I read scripture. Totally. Yeah. It's wise. Okay. Thanks, Joey. Thanks so much for answering 101 questions about this. Yeah, no, this is always fun. I always love Great. it. I mean, there's there's obviously so much more than you can ever talk about in a sermon. And so then to get to have a conversation about it is so fun. Yeah, so. I'm glad we do it. All right. Thanks, Joey. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Cut for Time. If you wish to submit questions to our pastors following their sermon, you can email them to podcast at faithlivitout.org 
or text them into our Faith Church texting number, and we'll do our best to cover it in the week's episode. If this conversation blessed you in any way, we encourage you to share it with others. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week.